0: Thanks very much to, to you all. Um, what I'm going to talk to, to you today, in the next uh, 47 minutes now, um, will be about my research uh, primarily in the Caribbean. I'm an urban geographer. I, I, I've worked uh, for a wee while in the Caribbean, and Latin America, and I'm interested in urban cities, or urban cities, there we are, in cities and how they work and how they don't work. Um, just to a start, I've been told that most of you are um, economics, politics, history, essentially social science students, and I know we have one chemist in the midst, in the midst. Is that right? Theologian. Theologian, grand, okay. great, great, great. So we're, we're, we're effectively multidisciplinary, which is brilliant. Um, how many of you have been to the Caribbean, any part of it over over the last, okay, grand. So if I, if I say to you, um, we'll just have a quick shout out, of the first three uh, things that come to your mind when we say the Caribbean, um, do you want to have a shout out and say what they might be? Seaside, Seaside sun. yeah. Pineapples. Pineapples, yeah, great. <laughs> Pineapple. Food. Uh, China. <laughs> yeah, Dance. yeah. Darts.
1: Darts. sorry,
0: I <laughs> yeah, <on>. Okay, great. <laughs> so uh, for about a decade, I taught, of course, in Oxford and Edinburgh on Caribbean side, as I say, you know, Caribbean, what's it all about? And given that both universities are in the UK and, both, uh, and most of the students I have to say are coming from a, shall we say, British or at least a Commonwealth background, you know, most of the ideas of the Caribbean are, to be honest, very, you know, Ganja, Bob Marley, and maybe cricket, <laughs> And they, they very much reflect the colonial heritage of growing up, maybe, or at least studying within the UK. But if you go to the Caribbean, the Caribbean by and large is a Spanish-speaking region, the main sport is, is baseball, uh, and the main dance is salsa, and it's not reggae, etc., etc. It might be reggaeton now, but it essentially it's a Spanish language uh, area region. It's also one of the most urbanized areas in the world, uh, and also most societies are relatively small in terms of their numbers. but are also mainly all, bar two, are insular societies. So we really have a society that is Spanish-speaking, it's primarily urban in terms of populations, and each society is is dealing with issues of insularity, which affects political, social, and economic contexts. So why am I talking about the Caribbean today? Well, over the last five years especially, uh, particularly over the last decade, regional governments, national governments, the UN, the World Bank, have said, what's the key problem, the key factor stopping uh, development, social, economic, and political development in the Caribbean, and the answer has been high levels of urban violence, increasing levels of violent crime within the Caribbean. So if we were here uh, 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, we would primarily be talking about ed- access to uh, education, formal education, safe drinking water, access to uh, good healthcare, care, etc. But really over the last five years, in certain societies in the Caribbean, it's levels of urban violence that are essentially stopping societies develop, evolve in an arguably sustainable and equitable way. So that's why we're going to be talking about the Caribbean today. And what we're going to be looking at, in my particular interest, is ideas of sustainable development and how they mesh with urban violence. And we're just going to look at two examples, sort of case studies where I've worked over the last few years, In Kingston, Jamaica, very briefly, and Santo Domingo, the capital of the Dominican Republic, I'm looking at how levels of violence become normalized, normative normative expectations in some downtown areas of Kingston or Santo Domingo of everyday violence, or levels of violence become accepted, normalized, and become part of the everyday fabric of using, passing through the urban landscape. On a wider level, academics and NGOs, Uh, and broader uh, agency organizations have been talking consistently about vulnerability of urban populations. And we'll we'll see why this is key in the next slide. There's a notion of a human resource weakness. And when you kind of read that, that sounds a very stark and uh, melancholic and depressive uh, analysis of the world's global urban population. But what it refers to is in in situations of high economic risk, political downturns, uh, large impacts upon many City, city populations, in many cases, the humans within those cities do not have the economic, the political, the health, the social resources to deal with these uh, um, negative impacts, whatever they may be. So the UN, in many reports, has looked at the economic vulnerability of the majority of the world's population. Also, you'll probably be well aware, and if any of you do uh, geography, or probably just every action now in the social studies, we'll have a set of figures, and I won't disappoint in the next slide, which show that really the ur- world today is urbanized. It's really only since the last uh, five years that the global population has become an urban population. Okay? So we are an urban race. So in these two examples, I'm going to look at social sustainability, and we'll look where that's coming from, uh, really from the 80s transition in terms of development studies and um, development practice. But look at ideas of security and forms of urban governance. So uh, the Caribbean, uh, for those of you uh, who all will know, uh, and I don't have a pointer, but if you look towards the middle of the map, you'll see Haiti and Dominican Republic to the east, and then you'll see Jamaica further along, uh, just south of Cuba. And you might say, well, hang on, I didn't realize the Caribbean is a Spanish-speaking area or region. Well, it's primarily because of the populations of Cuba and Dominican Republic in particular are so relatively large, uh, consisting of around 30 million people, and they're Spanish-speaking. So, in terms of number of of, of, uh, linguists or linguistic or language societies, by and large, uh, I guess English or Creole is the majority tongue. So that's where we're going to be for the next half hour or so. So, what are the key concepts of sustainable development? So I'm assuming, are you all, most of you are second, third year postgraduates and professors and you've probably all covered our ideas of sustainable development, is that right? Yeah. Pretty much so. And I gather I was just uh, hanging in on the last lecture and so some of the questions, I kind of figured you're all pretty much up to speed with this literature and what's occurring. But in, 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 in the, uh, in the uh, idea of inclusivity, I'm just going to very briefly break down sustainable development and what we can really mostly know about, and really in terms of what governments most know about, are ideas of environmental sustainability, etc. Uh, looking after the biophysical realm, economic sustainability, and which we all hopefully do on a day-to-day basis, or at least on a termly basis, of trying to make the, the, budgets, the budget balance uh, without causing detriment to yourself or others around you. But what I'm particularly interested in is the idea of social sustainability. And these are the key aspects of There's a question about growth versus development. Well, social sustainability is how the societies work. And arguably, the key glue, the key gel that makes a community work, uh, given if you have the, the basic needs provided, whether they be environmental or economic, is a social landscape, the social context that allows humans to interact and uh, progress together, or stay where they are because development can actually be static. There is no inherent need why you need a growth economy. Uh, And there will be a lot of economists who will be booing and hissing and probably members of the WTO. But as a notion of a no growth uh, situation, again, can be highly sustainable. So in terms of social sustainability, particularly in the global south, but clearly around us, you don't have to travel too far around Coventry or the Midlands to realise there are gross inequalities, economic, social and political, within the world around us. So social sustainability looks at poverty alleviation, it, it, it seeks to have equity in based enabling environments. It particularly looks at resource allocation and resource distribution, okay? For those of the economists, we're often, we're, we're often looking, looking increasingly at Liberian notions of access to consumption. You know, who can go to the good schools or go to schools, hopefully they're all going to be uh, of the same good standard, as opposed to what can we get to buy or what can we produce in, uh, in terms of more um, idea of development around the means of production. Okay? So social sustainability looks at production, but primarily it looks at access and equitable distribution of social, economic and political goods. Uh, I'll just go back to that. So I've just come from a week in, in China, and what is very really interesting in China, uh, in terms of their drive, and they have a big 30-year plan, saying the biggest problem China faces is essentially urban development rapid urban uh, uh, development, and for those of you who have been in Shanghai, if you were there 18 years ago and looked from one side of the river, you would have seen open fields. Now you see uh, a, a kind of futuristic metropolis uh, that has arisen in 18 years of rapid urban development. But in China, there's a recognition that, okay, we've kind of got the economic, in terms of. Uh, intellectual but also practice-based expertise, we've got the economics uh, issue sorted, we kind of know we need to look after the environment, there's a massive dearth of social studies, of sociological knowledge within the, the Chinese economy and polity to address this third key aspect of social sustainability. But arguably, that is remiss in many parts of our development policy. And if you look in some of the Westerns world development policy programs in the 90s, it was only then that the cultural turn, if you will, occurred, and aspects of the cultural context of society became uh, equated, or given as much priority as the economic, primarily, but also the environmental context of how people, where people live and how they're living in those environments. So the key kind of development in the early 80s, 1983, was the Brundtland Commission, which published a report in 1987, You'll probably all know a meeting of World Governments, meeting of international agencies, and they came up with the four key ideas, uh, defining points of, uh, of sustainable development. In many ways, these are, remain, uh, in my perspective, the key concepts to follow through. So the first one is to meet the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. So we put it all know the notion of intergenerational equity. With what we do today, we try and look after, or at least look towards, uh, our, our offspring and the future generations of the world. Clearly, uh, the Brundtland Commission highlighted the importance of social, economic and biophysical sustainability, but what I'm interested in particularly are the third and fourth points which have been there, they've been sitting really in policy documents and now very much activated around the world, is what you might consider the social sustainable aspects of results from the Brundtland Report, and it's looking at intergenerational equity, i.e., Yes, we need to think to the future, but we need to try to look at the uh, equitable distribution of the goods in society today. So sustainable development isn't about always about tomorrow, it's about today, and it's looking at issues of contemporary social justice and social equity. And uh, all the geographers in here will now get excited because we will mention space and spatial equity and the implicit notion of, of sustainable development, is political boundaries, even physical boundaries. Uh, really need to be uh, erased, if you will, or overcome, because any type of sustainable policy, whether it looks at economic, social or political ones, has to be transfrontier. Okay, You can't stop an urban development plan purely when you get to the limits of the metropolitan county or whatever. So my focus has been on sustainable cities, and what what I've been doing in my research and teaching is saying, okay, what has been generated in terms of the Global North, in terms of the idea of what is a sustainable city? And then we see what's happening in the global south, and see see where the two meet. Okay, so sustainable city again. For those who haven't covered this directly, there are kind of a series of points that come up again and again and again in the ideas of new urbanism or sustainable urban development. One is the awareness of urban impact on a region. So, that simplicity straight away, it's a transfrontier notion. It's pointless looking at a city and doing a nice little neat plan for a city if we don't see what's happening in the rural hinterland, hinterlands or the, or the corridors of uh, of uh, rural society intermeshed within urban zones. Uh, again, this is probably preaching to the convert, preaching to the converted, but increasingly governments and local governments and international agencies look for accountability and responsibility primarily for consumption. Okay. So in many ways, economic growth, economic development has looked at production. What can we produce? What can we churn out to increase profit margins and reinvest in an in a, in a enterprise? Well, it's a consumption in many ways is the starting point uh, in, in, for sustainable urban living. Local agenda one from the 1992 Rio summit, thinking globally, acting lo- locally, implicit in every city, whether it's 19 million people in Shanghai or 60,000 in Warwick. Is that right? No, I'm guessing. Anyway, at uh, whatever scale, it's that, that, that scale is, is a key aspect of sustainable government issues. Diversified economies, so even planners working today will have spent their formative years in uh, Reading University or whatever university around the world seeing how areas can be zoned, how we can keep industrial sites nicely removed from residential sites, nicely removed from shopping sites, and we can all whiz around on uh, in cars or uh, high-speed trains and go to these different zones sustainable city increasingly argues that it's a mixed land use a diversified economy you're living near a place of work because that essentially feeds into the key aspect of what makes a city livable it's sustainable forms of transport okay how we get about and the, the point principle is one of the key aspects of maybe sustainable urban planning i.e you should be able to to within an easy walk, 10 minutes or 15 minutes, walk to buy a pint of lemonade in a pub or a cafe. The last two points are probably what are the most sexy points of sustainable city. These are the, the points that come through in your supplements, in the FT or the Economist, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. First one is urban hydrological society, uh, cycle, i.e. It's important what we build above the ground, but what we're doing below the ground in the city, the sewage systems, how we're impacting upon the hydrology, not just of the city, but of the region, and arguably the the wider, uh, I guess, continental aspect of what happens below the ground is as important as building neat, zero-carbon buildings above. And what fuels cities, arguably, uh, increasing the need for renewable energies. So that is all uh, probably fairly well known. Now so what I'm going to do in the, next, uh, yeah, in the next half hour or so is look very briefly at some examples of what have been seen as sustainable on new urban developments in uh, North America particularly, but I'm going to focus primarily on how some of these ideas have or haven't been transferred uh, in terms of social sustainability to the Caribbean. So has anyone been to Celebration Florida? So it was built in the mid-90s by the Disney Corporation, just near the Florida, um, Disney Park, primarily in some ways to house visitors, but it's become what is seen as a, a you know one of the livable new urban villages in the USA. And you can see aesthetically it's very nice. It follows some of the aspects of sustainable urbanism, the notion of focusing on building place, creating a community. The argument, if you want to live in a neighborhood because you feel good, you're more likely to involve yourself in some of the social networks, social activities, and create a sustainable society. And you won't be able to read some of these uh, lower things. These are from the Celebration Zone uh, website, the the, the council's uh, district's website. But you see there's a nice level of uniformity. Everyone has their white picket fences. You can walk on the street. Uh, It says, sit on porch and be neighborly. There's a notion that access between uh, households essentially will be via the pavement or the sidewalk. Okay? And that, that interaction is on a small scale. And we can have a city of two million people, but it will be made up of a series of urban villages. And I would be London, more by um, chance in some ways, but the borough system in London does create a series of fairly compact, uh, in many ways uh, um, independent-ish, urban villages. So the sprawl of London in some ways can be seen as a very loose template for a uh, more sustainable form of living, Seaside, Florida, um, was actually one of the first new urban developments uh, developed in uh, the mid '70s. In in again in Florida, uh, does anyone recognise uh, Seaside? Think of a film, Truman Show. Yeah, yeah. So the Seaside was developed, and because it was deemed to be such an aesthetically pleasing. Beautiful environment, it became the set for the Truman Show. You know, it had the white picket fences, we had uh, uh, two parents, 2.1 kids, or whatever, uh, dogs and cats. It became aesthetically this ideal for the wacky and arguably unsustainable world realm of the, of the Truman Show. Okay. But in some ways, these are, these are the ideas of urban development, but what Scully has pointed out and and what increasingly people are recognising and most of you in the room will recognise, is that one, and I'll quote from Scully, one cannot help but hope that the lessons of seaside, i.e. creating a livable space and of other new towns now taking shape, can be applied to the problem of housing for the poor. That is where community is most needed and where it has been most destroyed. So in many ways we look over the last 20, 30 years in terms of urban planning, urban development in the global north and say, well, yes, we've created uh, you know, nice film sets, but who lives there? Initial plots of houses, house plots were sold for $15,000. Now it's $3 million to buy your BG residence in this ideal sort of uh, economically, if you will, gated uh, town in Florida. So clearly, it was doing well in some ways, but the socially sustainable aspect is somewhat uh, removed. So we're going to fly south uh, about 150 miles now, 200 miles south to uh, Jamaica, Kingston, Jamaica, and see this is almost the extreme level of how a society, Jamaican is seen uh, in many ways as a classic Westminster post-clone society. If you look at the, the elections, Every four years there's been a very smooth transition from one political party to the other, or just a general perception that Jamaica is working from the outside. Uh, but it, how many of you were aware of the Coke incident in May 2010? Allegedly there was a close link between this, this businessman, Dude's Coke, and uh, corruption within the government, allegedly. Um, but what happened and why this made news, over the last 30 years, downtown Kingston has essentially been seen as a form of, uh, in, in a state of informal civil war. In the 60s and 70s, inter-political violence created high levels of, of, of murder on the streets, and as the narcotics traffic sort of infiltrated more and more into the Caribbean, particularly within areas of, let's say, the Jamaican economy, the local community dons, who were had patronage and were seen as clients to the uh, local MPs, and uh, I'll talk about the the, the the spatial connections with garrisons in a second. <laughs> Essentially, what became more useful and more powerful the, the community dons themselves were kind of working within the informal economy of narco-traffics, narco trafficking but also other economies uh, in terms of delivering uh, local products or, 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 or um, commercial activities, etc. So we had a part of, of Kingston. I don't know. I, have a, I don't have a map. No, I don't. Uh, we have parts of Kingston, downtown Kingston, where essentially were governed by people who had uh, respect, had power, had influence, and had resources who were outside, by and large, the formal uh, reins of government. In March 2000, May 2010, again, Do This code, was uh, it had been a long time... Uh, the US government seemed to extradite him from Jamaica. For a long time, the Jamaican government said, no, this is, you know, he's a Jamaican citizen, he's not going to be extradited. In May 2010, when the the Prime Minister at the time said, actually, okay, we will extradite this person because he has allegedly committed crimes and the US government wants to uh, put him to trial, the local communities kind of defended him, essentially. So you saw downtown Kingston split very much in two. And although there's been high levels of urban violence going on for many years, for three decades, it was this particular event where essentially a state government and the Jamaican Defence Force, the state police, lost control of a large segment of downtown Kingston as, as a residence, a kind of, if you will, protected these garrison communities, protected uh, um, Dudas Coke, And he wasn't found by the, by the police and the military. And what happened after, I not there a couple of weeks, he actually handed himself in to the Jamaican military police, or Jamaican police, and said, okay, I'll, I, I'm innocent, I will stand trial. But what it brought, with well, a key aspect of this, we have a society that's, um, in many ways, the levels of crime have been normalised. And we haven't read, by and large, unless you're reading Jamaican Gleaner, about, if you will, no go areas or, or levels of high urban violence within Jamaica. And so I've got some stats for those who are interested in the stats. But essentially, this is just from a newspaper over a, a um, I, think it was in, I think it was in February earlier this year, just how the images are, everyone here has been involved with, for, uh, a victim or involved, connected with a murder and it was just not the front page news in the Gleaner. For those of you who, who know the Jamaican Gleaner, it's a national newspaper, levels of uh, murder, high levels of violence are sort of scattered throughout. So when we have, and this is from 2005, these would actually make front page newses, news on, in say the British press. Uh, but essentially, they kind of filter in into the monthly stats report. So we see one murder every six hours. 746 Jamaicans have been murdered since January, etc., etc, etc. But it's almost like a, an accounting, a monthly accounting. And when the number of people murdered per year go across, say, a thousand mark, it becomes news for a while, and then it just recedes into uh, that's what it's like, primarily in downtown Jamaican society. Now, what we see the government doing as well in terms of the government's reporting is anyone find something rather unusual in terms of the definition of, of, of the categories of uh, people who are the perpetrators of a recorded violent death? Okay, yeah, I mean they've the implicitly made a statement there that those gunmen, those believed to be part of uh, local uh, gangs, if you will, are outside society; they're not Jamaican citizens. And that is just purely a, a report on the statistics, but essentially they've been made citizens, sh- taken their citizenship away. OK? So when it reports 18 by civilians, that might be in terms of domestic abuse, etc., etc. But implicitly, the, the government is saying, really in the last decade, that there are two societies. There's a formal society where Jamaican citizens, the residents of Kingston, can expect the largesse, if you will, or at least access to state welfare, state quality. But then you have, in this case, uh, the remaining uh, 80% of the population in these areas are, if you will, or at least in these figures, are somehow outside the formal levels of governance, are parts of an informal network of community leadership, uh, neighbourhood support, etc. And clearly, Dudas Coat would be part of this uh, informal network of governance. So, arguably, this type of, of setup, where large areas, like are in some cities, sort of exist outside of formal urban governance, in many cases, is, is not sustainable. Although I think PJ Patterson gave an opening speech here a couple of nights ago, and in, in his response and others' response, I think, well, actually, maybe we just we have to look at how the formal aspects of governance negotiate and create a sustainable result, if you will, or a sustainable process and recognise that large parts of urban areas, particularly in, in downtown Kingston, the primarily the primary source of leadership is from a community leader, regardless of uh, his or her business interests. So uh, this is really going back to the start. And I just sort of finished with the example of work uh, uh, I've I've done in in Dominican Republic. And the reason why the Dominican Republic case is important is because the World Bank has singled out the police and state response to high levels of violence in Dominican Republic as a way forward, a sort of rolling out uh, means of policing and surveillance across the Americas. And, and right at the very end, we'll see why this might cause some cause for, if not alarm or concern, but some cause for statement. So in 2007, the World Bank and the UN Office on Drugs and Crime did a report, and it made headline news because it kind of reaffirmed what many Caribbean state leaders have been saying, what many members of NGOs have been saying, and that was that urban violence was in the single most, uh, the single greatest hindrance to social economic development within the Caribbean region. And this, uh, who of you do stats here, oh dear, apologies, so you'd be wincing at a diagram, won't you? It is purely diagrammatic. And if you, um, so what it's trying to show, and it was done uh, in, a, in, a, in a flash of, uh, of, of propaganda, it shows that the results from the UN uh, re- research and, and government stats, says the Caribbean per head has the highest rate of murders per thousand population. Okay. And so the, the actual um, curve there is somewhat uh, misleading, but the actual figures down the left-hand side do show the Caribbean is the most violent urban area uh, in the world. And it's, um, again, I, I think looking at the figures of the Middle East and South, or Middle East especially, you might want to revise those figures which were coming from the mid-2000s. But it is a shock, you know, and this made front page of the Economist, and it kind of brought, as do this Koch's involvement uh, in May of this year, but it brought the Caribbean to the global attention where it surfaced for a few months and then subsided into uh, its importance. But the World Bank and UN have continued and these are just, uh, again, the statistics, especially around income and murder, are often very unreliable in terms of relying on people's veracity in terms of income data, but also in terms of recording uh, data or events for murder. But of these, uh, the left-hand side, you'll see countries, and the first ten are the so-called top ten. And if you look at that, you'll see, well, Jamaica is in the uh, third position, but out of those ten countries, seven are from Latin America or the Caribbean. So you start seeing why the UN and the World Bank and other global organizations have been looking towards Latin America, saying, hang on, what's happening here? If we look at the economic downturn, Latin America has actually done reasonably well over the last three years. It hasn't suffered in many ways, Uh, the economic collapse of parts of Europe or North America, it's actually gone through relatively well, and in economic terms, it's pretty much doing okay. And some of the countries, like the Dominican Republic, were termed miracle economies during the early 2000s because their growth was, on a global scale, relatively phenomenal, up to 9% plus per year, almost matching, well, getting towards almost some levels of of Chinese growth uh, of today. And so on this we see, however, Jamaica, but also the Dominican Republic, is the 15th highest in some of these collated figures of urban violence. So just to give some uh, notes, Jamaican population is around 2.3 million, and uh, you're essentially now around 2,000 people are murdered (coughs) per year, which doesn't seem much, per se, when you look at the uh, larger countries, but in terms of the size of the population and the concentration of those uh, homicide events, shall we say, or those murders, it is a concentrated and and very troublesome phenomenon. Similarly, in the Dominican Republic, population around nine million, uh, and the the level of murders per year are also around, uh, well, it's over 2,200, not seen to be big in terms of numerical uh, blunt numbers, but when you look where uh, aspects of Santo Domingo essentially close or have relatively high levels of violence, again, very troubling. So, we're going to move to the Dominican Republic, and a couple of weeks, yeah, 1st of November, nearly three weeks ago, um, the Chief of National Police, José Amanda Polanco Gomez, uh, said, he, he came re- reported back on a project that's been running since 2006, essentially which is a zero tolerance policing problem in Santo Domingo, in the Dominican Republic and I'll I'll show you the the, the next speech, which is a cornerstone, but what uh, uh, what Balanco Gomez is saying here is we're facing really a new form of policing, a new police force, one that's modernised its methods and its uh, channels of communication. And so what we see since 2005, the Dominican government has said addressing forms of urban violence is the key aspect that we need to do. The economy is going, going along nicely, thank you, slight downturn, but it's this level of social policy and social uh, if you will, governance, is really the key issue. And uh, Gomez has said the key aims or well, the key things the police force needs to do is to respond to the demands of security and to guarantee public order, which are not, um, not uh, well, fairly obvious. But what we're looking at is the ways this type of public control and governance has been affected. So the plan that evolved out is uh, called the Plan for Democratic Security. Uh, as you see, in the, uh, it's uh, run across the Attorney General, the Secretary of the Interior and the Police and uh, the National Police. Uh, the icon in the figure is this uh, nuclear happy household, we're guessing it's mum, dad and two kids, and the notion of security. For those of you who looked at international relations or politics, the idea of security is one of the key buzzwords really across the Americas, really across globally. Security has become part of the development agenda. So what we're trying to see, well, what does this security entail? Uh, and Leonel Fernandez uh, was the, is, is the president, who's still in power, but he was the one who rolled out this uh, initiative. It was affected in 2006, and I'll tell you a little bit about what happened. Essentially, it's zero tolerance policing. Certain areas in the city were deemed to be out of control and so you had a large-scale militarization of uh, down, some downtown areas of Santo Domingo. There's a few maps to, to put this uh, in more into the picture. But Fernandez argued that the Dominican Republic can't continue the way it's going. We it can't continue with uh, citizenship's insecurities, with the traffic of influences. Okay? And that influence, that refers to not only drug trafficking, passing through the Dominican economy, but also refers to Haitian migration, which has been a long-standing Issue within Dominican society. a number of Haitian migrants who've settled uh, uh, and, have been a, and it's been an ongoing uh, source of conflict, particularly within the Dominican government and the popular Dominican ref- rhetoric. Can't continue with uh, clientelism, with the illicit enrichment or legal aris- enrichment, with the abuse of power, with disrespect, above all with a lack of seriousness or gravity in everything. So, and this is when Leonel was saying this, he was the Tony Blair of the Caribbean, he said, Let's construct a new society. Or to David Cameron, I guess. Let's uh, be more more solidarity, more justice, more prosperity, more humanity, um, more more democratic, sorry, more transparent, and more participatory. So what the Barrio Seguro program is, the cornerstone of the plan for democratic security, is essentially targeting neighborhoods in Santo Domingo and now elsewhere around uh, the urban areas of the Dominican Republic. And Barrio Seguro means safe neighborhood for those of you who may be aware of, of, of New York's reputation in the late 80s, 90s, Mayor Giuliani and the Chief of Police Bratton set, in, uh, set up a new policing policy in the mid-90s late that focus on zero tolerance, i.e. in a certain neighborhood, any type of uh, infraction, whether it was throwing chewing gum on the floor, um, stealing a cat, bending a window wiper, selling crack, all these forms of illegal behavior were clamped down, so zero tolerance, high level of policing, of police presence. And essentially, this form of, uh, of, of zero tolerance policing has been rolled out in, in some uh, s- states across the Americas, and Bratton has a consultancy firm that does this form of policing. And one thing I should say, it's very easy for a, uh, a wishy-washy academic to be cynical. But I think it's very, and it's very important to recognize that these governments have been doing what believed to be the best way. And I think if I was in the Dominican government, if I was head of the police force, I would say, well, hang on. Uh, in many ways, zero tolerance did have some positive aspects in New York. So why not apply it elsewhere? But as you see, safe neighbourhood is a key uh, government development flagship, really since the last four years. And there's a every Sunday night there's a TV program, and there's a, a government report on how successful uh, the policing has been um, in terms of number of arrests, etc., etc. So what we see in the Barrio seguro program, it's very much a, a attempt to reclaim not only the streets of Santo Domingo, but reclaim really the notion of a safe, sovereign Dominican space. And that Dominican space, as we'll see in the next couple of slides, by and large excludes immigrants and primarily those uh, people deemed to be of Haitian origin, even if they're fourth, fifth, sixth generation. So Santo Domingo is a large city, population 9 million a country, around 2.5 million in the capital itself. Um, if if this map was to scale, the edge of the urban area would probably hit, well, go into the next room. So what we're looking at above, there's no point to us anyway. What we're looking at above is the central colonial zone. Has anyone been to Santo Domingo, by any chance? Okay, okay. So we're looking at a central colonial zone, the zone of colonial, that's the pretty tourist area. The area shaded not very clearly, but you see the dotted line. They were the 13 neighbourhoods of barrios, and they're probably more that were singled out in 2006 by the government as the dangerous zones of the city. Okay? Now, How has this come about? Well, there were no stats. There were no stats of crime. Nobody knew where the most dangerous areas are, but these were the lowest income neighbourhoods. and It was deemed that these were the most dangerous areas and some very, I don't know, you could argue dubious, but some very loose connections were made to say, okay, let's focus on these certain neighbourhoods. Uh, they're primarily very low income neighbourhoods. The ones near the river are largely unplanned, if you want, uh, squatter settlements, if you want to use that term, or informal settlements have evolved, but extremely low level of formal service provision. So, what I've been doing over the last four years has been interviewing people in these neighbourhoods just to see, okay, how's the Barrio Seguro, how's the new uh, policing programme working out? Um, and, and there are, as you would guess, mixed results, but often there is the good and the bad in, in each. But to give you an idea of the implication of living in uh, one of these neighbourhoods, um, each of these, Lazorso, of Capotillo, uh, each neighbourhood houses around 15,000 people. And if we whiz back to our earliest idea of urban villages, there's a notion that a most sustainable urban uh, unit is around 20,000 people. That kind of provides enough people to have a local economy, enough interaction, it's kind of a sizable unit. Of uh, of uh, of neighbourly togetherness, but of these 13 neighbourhoods, they kind of represent uh, about 150,000 people in a city of, of 2.3 million. So they really are a drop in the ocean. But the programme said it's these 13 neighbourhoods that are the most troublesome. On fairly uh, dubious, if you will, stats or on no stats at all. So, what was it like living here? Well, in, uh, there was uh, in Capotillo, which is a, you'll just see in the sort of middle uh, to the left. Um, Capotillo There was a there's a trial program, but uh, a trial pilot intervention. But in July 2006, 16,000 uh, Dominican military police uh, and military soldiers and police were mobilised in this relatively small part of the city. So if you imagine, one day you're sitting outside, the next day you have half the Dominican military and police state, well, police force there on your doorstep. And this is the second, well, it's the largest single mobilization of Dominican military and police uh, forces since 1965. And in 1965, the Dominican Republic, was, a civil war was declared, the US Marines landed to assist with the uh, s- civil problems there but if you look at the comparison. In 1965, half the military force were mobilized because there was a civil war. 2006, 30 years later ish, half the military and police forces of a country are mobilized because it's been deemed that these 13 very low income neighborhoods are a threat, not only to them themselves, but to the city and to the wider uh, notion of a safer and more secure Dominican society. So in some ways, that's the scale of the operation, and that's just to show you there that you can see some of the southernly neighbourhoods are fairly well planned, have uh, re- regularish access to piped water, electricity, tarmac road, etc. At the other, shall we say, two thirds, the riverine two thirds are essentially uh, without formal development; uh, they're sort of uh, ad hoc, de facto streets, neighbourhoods evolving. Okay, and this is a cartoon pinned with great pride, and, and you know, in some ways rightly so, and in the office of the Barrio Seguro program, and it argues that the 12 initially, but the 13 barriers, confirmed barriers in the end, this is how it works. Barrio Seguro allows the citizens who previously were living in what deemed to be dangerous, unsafe places where they couldn't work, they couldn't set up daily profitable economic livelihoods, but at night with the Barrio Seguro and during the daytime in this sort of zero tolerance, leasing surveillance initiative, the residents could sleep and that meant they would be productive and get on with their normal livelihoods. So in some ways it's a very clear and logical and arguably the best option to do. But it says a triumph for everyone, so everyone's happy. And I did very briefly run through the four key points, uh, very briefly in terms of the Safe Neighborhood Initiative. So Leonel Fernandez has argued to bring the Dominican Republic through a development initiative, technology was the key. I think i last technology when there's a question about, we can use technology to overcome uh, environmental, uh, economic, uh, social issues. Well, technology itself does nothing. Technology is, and without technology, let's pretend this is a, a mobile phone, the latest range from Nokia. This is a bit of a kit, okay? This mobile phone itself is a bit of material. It could be seen as technology. Its impact is what we do with it, okay? It's a social process. So what we do with that light, like with this state-of-the-art mobile phone, whatever—that's where technology is important. So if you have the material kit, great, but you need the social process and the knowledge to operate that kit to do uh, to transform society in the way you want. And so what Fernandez has said, well, actually, technology is the answer, but in some ways, it's brought in a lot of new kits for the policing force. Okay, so um, the new image, and I've sort of mixed these points around, but. A new image of the police force in these the uh, zona norte, the northern zone, the thirty neighbourhoods. Uh, there are new Harley Davidson Jeeps. Harley Davidson Jeeps, no Harley Davidson bikes, there are new Jeeps, there are a whole range of laptops being introduced to officers in the new Jeeps. Um, there are mobile phones, there's a kind of an emphasis on a new uh uniforms for the of police, to separate this police force, the Valer Seguro police force, as not part of the old corrupt, ancient Dominican way of doing policing. It's a new modern, high-tech version. Now, what we, when we interview police officers in the Dominican Republic, we will say, that's a great new laptop, and they would say, yeah, but there's still not any data. So they have laptops, but there's no database yet collated, and that's just a case of no data from 2006. It's gonna take some while to go through. But a notion of, well, with a laptop, uh, that will help help things forward. The other aspect was police officers have been given a GPS system. And there's implicit a mismatch in a logic there, because Barrios despite the high level surveillance, curfew from 10 in the evening through to 6 in the morning, it was a community policing project. So the notion was local residents would come to know their local officers and essentially work to solve the problems, the crime problems of the area. But quite clearly, why do you need a GPS system if you're a community police officer? You know, it's sort of, again, the wrong logic there in some ways. And especially GPS systems do not work in those riverine unplanned neighborhoods because there is no, ground-based data to kind of assists you where Galle dossiers, is, etc. So that's in a wider image of development policy in the Dominican Republic, that <coughs> mismatch in some ways between modernization technology and arguably socially or economically sustainable development is somewhat missing. The police force was uh, aspects were trained uh, overseas, primarily in North America, and there's a notion there that, okay, if we have external policing, they'll be better. They'll get new techniques. The last two points really is how did the zero tolerance work, well it's intensive surveillance. Large numbers of police military officers making the streets safe, okay? Um, and what, what has been shown there, often crime is just displaced elsewhere. So there's a, an excellent uh, unit of research, I think at Leeds University, that showed that when ASBOs are introduced to an area or, or applied to people, levels of crime are often just displaced into the next neighbourhood. So when you take a spatially focused uh, policing policy, what you're doing is saying, okay, we're not going to look at certain problems, individual problems in, in, in the barrio. We're kind of saying everyone in that barrio is a problem. And the only way we can address that is using a spatial framework to flood the place with law and and we will we'll sort out the population. So it's the people, rather than maybe the neighborhood becomes a problem. And, just, uh, and also what happens to those who live in the Caribbean, if you have um, spent time, you realize that most of those households are not Two, far, two parents and, and two, two kids. Often there'll be eight or nine plus, plus. in the neighborhoods I worked in, I work, I work in average household size of about eight to nine to 10 people, but it means there's a generational uh, flow of, of interaction. So evenings were often with grandparents sitting outside minding the kids, while parents worked, or that you know, extended network was actually a very important social glue. If you have to enforce everyone to be indoors by 10 o'clock, that suddenly puts 10 people in a very small room. And that has had some very clear should we say, social costs in terms of uh, family um, and, and social context. Okay, uh, last point is, that is a wider issue, that this is clearly a policing program to address crime. The Dominican Republic in many ways is quite rightly concerned about levels of immigration, wants to try and make sure that it is able to support those people living in its uh, territory. But what we see when uh, you interview people, say, okay, what's the problem of crime? Who's co- what's the cause of crime? Two clear answers. First one is the notion of de- deportees. Dominican migrants, uh, I think in 2003, rather if they were in, uh, met, found guilty of crime in the USA, they'd be put in prison in the USA and serve their time there. From 2003, if found guilty, a Dominican, or any, really, you know, I think it's any migrant, was deported back to the country of origin. So there was an argument in 2003, you had all these highly street-savvy trained Dominican convicted criminals were kind of left at uh, Las Americas Airport. And if you arrive as a deportee, you have no access to to identity cards. You'll never be able to get a bank account because you have no formal identity. You'll really rarely be able to get a a, a, a long-standing job. So they said, okay, this is an issue. We need to rehabilitate our brothers and sisters. The other key aspect of who to blame were Haitian migrants and settlers. And I've mentioned that, and there was a notion that really fueled the idea that Haitian immigrants, however deemed to be Haitian, should be deported. So every year, around 2,000 people deemed to be Haitian descent are deported from the Dominican Republic forcibly. And in some ways, you can see how the policing uh, program has assisted that form to deportation, because if you're walking around the street and you don't have your identity papers, which the majority of people of Haitian descent do not have, in Dominican Republic because of the reasons it's very difficult to get uh, those papers if you're a, a Haitian um, worker it meant there was a sort of implicit element of well okay we'll deport those right Those have papers that is a sort of a, 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 um, a more indirect form of deportation um, policy <coughs> within this okay so Barry Seguro, you can see that's the quite a, a, a strong identity it's a strong program going on in uh, in uh, last four years, it really fits the idea that social sustainable development policy is actually the key, the way forward. You need to make societies work, make them safer, make them more secure, but clearly it raises certain issues about how you go about doing it. And again, it's very easy to s- sit to the side and be cynical, but really the key issues that are affecting the Caribbean and the Americas overall are increasing levels of urban violence. And we see regional, uh, former economists, but also uh, state, household, individual livelihoods being disrupted across a variety of scales uh, due to everyday normative violence. As I mentioned, zero tolerance policing has been seen in many ways by the best way forward. Uh, but it often, and it case of Santo Domingo and, and other studies uh, globally, displaces the crime that it seeks to address. And finally, if you finish on the bigger picture, for those of you who have studied uh, economics and economic development in the 80s, The notion was to fix certain economies that were not deemed to be uh, growing or had negative growth, were deemed to be problematic. They were structurally adjusted by the the IMF, uh, um, various global economic organizations. So you rolled out a structural adjustment policy to fix state economies. And what we see now, particularly in the recent report from the World Bank and the UN, is saying, well, OK, if we look at the example of San Domingo, that seems to be a neat project. And maybe, in terms of socially adjusting, problematic in, in common societies, in the Americas and the Americans belong and beyond, this form of policing, intense policing, is a way forward. Okay? So again, that type of social adjustment, social policy, might be rolled out uh, onwards.